let's do that as we look to our Lord in prayer. And we rightly pause on a Memorial Day weekend. And as that article was penned, it's not so much a weekend to celebrate as it is a weekend to commemorate. It's a time to reflect. And we pause in the second of the three services, and again we're praying for the soldiers that are connected with this congregation, scattered throughout the earth, that no matter where they are right now, that you are speaking into their hearts, ministering to their needs. They have spouses back in the States. I pray that you would minister to them as well. So for those stationed near, for those stationed far, Father, we're praying that this morning's teachings will minister to their hearts on the battlefield of life. Likewise, Father, we're praying this morning for all who feel as though in some way, shape, or form they're under siege. Something unexpected, perhaps, has taken place. And they're trying to find their way. Now, for the person who at one time was finding their way, but for some reason has lost their way, bring them back to you. Speak into that heart real truth. Let them know that we love them. And Father, for those that are grappling with the meaning of life, the purpose of life, and why are we in the condition we are in globally, nationally, locally, personally, draw them to Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ. It's there that we find our eternal freedoms. So Father, the minutes ahead are important as we explore your word. Once again, asking that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills as we've come here to see Jesus and him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Carol Avriot has uh, written a book that's entitled The Coffin Corner Boys. It's a World War II story of survival behind enemy lines. It's an incredible podcast out. You might want to listen in. As she's interviewed with regard to what took place in the story that I'll describe succinctly. For you see, in 1944, as she would put it, George Stocks was just a 19-year-old from Florida when he and his high school buddies enlisted in the U.S. military. They wanted to enjoy the action of World War II. So George was assigned to the 92nd Bomb Group in which the median age was 22. And on his crew's first bombing mission, together received the most vulnerable spot of a B-17 mission configuration. Low squadron. Low group, flying number six in the bomber box formation. Airmen called George's position the, quote, 
coffin corner, unquote. Because here exposure was most likely to draw hostile fire. Now, sure enough, she writes, George's plane was shot down. And as it's shot down, he jumps 25,000 feet for the first and only time. And he lives to tell the story. He lands in war-torn France, begins a 300-mile trek through the dangers of the region toward the freedom of neutral Switzerland. Through waist-deep snow, searing exhaustion, close encounters with Nazis, George repeated to himself these words, quote, Just one more day. Unquote. He wasn't merely in a battle. Well, he battled to just keep walking. For his fellow soldiers were scattered all over Europe and experienced places as formidable as a German POW camp and as hospitable as Spain, each crew member always wondering about the fate of the other. Well, after the war, George made two vows. One, he would never lose touch with his men again. And number two, one day would attempt to thank those who had risked their lives to save his. And despite passage of time and demands of career and family, he accomplished both. He reunited with his crew and then 25 years later returned to France to locate as many of the brave souls who had helped him evade the enemy as he could. And so this story is of a man who is retracing his steps to freedom. And it's a story that tells of the amazing experiences of sacrifice and survival and how 10 young American men plus French helpers, became heroes. Two things stood out from that podcast. The first was that his position was known as the coffin corner. The other was his repeated phrase, just one more day. Now, maybe this morning you feel as though just in your own personal experience you are under siege in one way, shape, or form, and I don't know what that might be, but you know. Or maybe a loved one is. So I want to talk about battlefields and life under siege and what principles can we extract from these verses that can equip you and equip me to stay focused upon the one who died in our place for eternal freedoms. There's four stanzas here in this musical composition. Each one has something of significance to, to teach us. The first stanza is verse 1 through 3, and we're going to put it like this, that in times of what we'll describe as intensifying conflict, take on one more day. First of all, reflecting upon what we'll call the greatness of our God. This is what Judah had to do. Now, again, as you see in your insert, I try to describe it succinctly for you. 701 B.C., Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy forces. Seems to be no way out. 
Well, what do you do? Where do you go? Where do we begin? You begin with God. Notice that in Judah, God is known. What is interesting is that Judah is surrounded by Assyrian forces. It does not read, in Assyria, God is known. No. It reads here, in Judah, God is known, which now challenges you and challenges me, because so many times when we find ourselves under siege, we might be prone to say, but I know God. Why am I going through what I am going through when I know God, and and those that seem to be blessed don't? Now, these are the sorts of questions that people through the years have continuously asked, particularly Christians who find themselves on what we might call the battlefield of life. So don't overlook that opening phrase. It's in Judah. It's not in Assyria. It's 701, and they're surrounded. It's in Judah, but it's in Judah that God is known. It's not in Assyria where God is known. Which tells me then that if God is known, God is knowable. J.I. Packer wrote that brilliant book, of course, that we referred to in our series in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Knowing God. And the moment somebody might challenge you if you were to use the phrase, I know God, by saying, that sounds arrogant, you might want to return the response in the form of a question, but is God knowable? Because the issue is not about you, the issue is about God. The starting point is not whether you know God, the question is, has God made himself knowable for us to know God? Always start with God, not with yourself. So now, the knowable God has made himself known, and what you and I are told then at this point is that his name is great. Fascinating. Because time and time again, in modern-day terrorist matters, you will hear the words of an Islamic jihadist. Let's just take 2001, 9-11. American and United Airlines planes are crashing to World Trade Center in New York City. Pentagon, a field in Pennsylvania. And somebody shouts out, Al-Akbar! What are they saying? They're saying God is great. Now, in a pluralistic society such as ours, then the person who might be a secularist will say, well, what makes your God greater than their God? That's a legitimate kind of question. And in a pluralistic society, it's very difficult to be able to make headway with exclusive claims unless you can back it up with evidence. Of course, that in his Quran, that Jesus Christ is viewed as a, a prophet, a great prophet, and Muhammad is viewed as the greatest prophet, and so on. But then examine the evidence of their burial places. If your Muhammad is the greatest prophet, why is his grave occupied? And Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, his grave is empty. Is Allah great or is Yahweh great? See, the evidence demands that we look very carefully at where greatness is to be found. You and I are given tremendous opportunities then to be able to draw out modern day experiences and point people to the greatness of the one 
who three days later was raised from the dead. Now, what we need then at this point, when life seems to be such that we're under siege, is a reawakening in our hearts, our minds, our souls of the greatness of God. In first service, they say, and great is the Lord, he is great to be praised. Well, in Judah, God is known, his name is great in Israel. And now what fascinates me, because he's not only speaking poetically, he's speaking prophetically, and there's this interwining, interwoven nature of the verses throughout the Psalms. Uh, Judah refers to the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. The Assyrians had certainly done their job on the northern kingdom, and now the people in the southern kingdom are pondering matters of this nature as well. And lo and behold, in verse 2, you and I are then informed his abode has been established in Salem. Now, when you're reading in Genesis chapter 14, you get to the point where you realize that Melchizedek, the king, was king of Salem. In Hebrew, the word is for Salem, shalom, means peace. Modern day, we view that setting not so much as Salem, but Jerusalem. And if there's anything but a sense of peace right now in that highly conflicted setting in the Middle East, well, Jerusalem would take first honors there. But there's so many people throughout the world that are lacking a sense of true peace. You and I have to begin with the greatness of our Lord, and His greatness is such that He's great in power. He is able to raise the second member of the Trinity from the grave. So you ponder now the greatness of our God, and then when you see the word abode in the Hebrew of the Old Testament, carries with the same idea of where Jesus Christ takes residence in your heart in the Newer Testament. In other words, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, God has made your heart his abode. He reigns. So now, historically at this point, the psalmist is penning this musical composition. His abode has been established in Jerusalem, in Salem. Notice that it's not the Assyrian that has been established at this point in Salem. It is Yahweh, and furthermore, his dwelling place is in Zion. So what he does then at this point is he gives us a great understanding of the greatness of God. So who has the authority to define greatness? I would say it's the one who can raise one from the dead. William Wolfe, writing about Abraham Lincoln, speaks and writes of the fact that as the Civil War extended itself onward, Lincoln seemed to have a greater and greater comprehension and sensitivity to God. And if you read carefully, you will see an expansion of Lincoln's awareness of God from the earlier to the later stages of the Civil War experience. He writes that here was one who, in the sense of seeing the hand of God, saw him as intimately involved in the affairs of nations. 
Now, here at this point, God is so intimately involved in the affairs of nations that he is working simultaneously with matters pertaining to the Assyrians as well as to the Israelites. Nobody is left out. Which is a reminder to you and me that when you feel as though you've been left out and that life is under siege, God is at work both with the Assyrians, so to speak, in your life, as well as the believers. So in verse 3, we are told something interesting here, poetically, that links to something historically. In verse 3, there he, speaking of God, not the Jews, there he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war, Notice the threefold descriptive there, arrows, shield, sword, pulls it all together, calls them the weapons of war, and then wants you to hit the pause button, or what we do in music, it's a rest within the measure. What he wants us to do is to say la. On Monday, then, for Memorial Day, we say la, and we commemorate, we don't celebrate, we commemorate the loss of life for the sake of national freedom. The believer then looks for a way for the secular mindset to pave a way to understanding how one day laid his life down for eternal freedom. But here, he's matching the poetic and the historic to 2 Kings 19, where in verses 32, down through verse 34, There is something powerful here where God speaks of the way in which he worked. And in verse 32, therefore thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow or come before it with a shield. Or cast up a siege mound against it. You see, Isaiah is informing Hezekiah prophetically. And now this musician is composing these thoughts musically. And this is another installment that leads to the final installment of still to come in the future. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return. He shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. Just so contemporary, isn't it? Because Jerusalem is, in fact, the epicenter. And we've got to be able to understand the significance of how the past relates to the present, the present relates to the future, and yet make this thing personal simultaneously and ask yourself, where where am I under siege right now? I need to say la. And I'm going to have to recalibrate and once again allow for the greatness of God to manifest itself within my mindset as I begin to think through the issues of life. You're doing that. And so verses 1 through 3, there's your first stanza, and they want you to reflect upon the greatness of our God. 
But now you move on to the second stanza, where at times what I'll call intensifying conflict, take on one more day, and then we reflect upon the accomplishments of our God. You start with who God is and then move to what God does. So when you feel as though life is under siege, you're going to have to begin with who God is and then move to what God does, who before the what, but by all means, move from the who to the what. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we move from the who to the what, who Christ is to what, what Christ did, died on the cross to save us from our sins, entering into the cosmic battle of life itself. And so now, you begin to think about what God has done globally, what God has done nationally, what God has done for you personally when you feel as though you're under siege. And now he picks it up in verse 4 and says, Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey. What God is doing at this point is he's saying, examine nature. Ponder the capacities of God. Ponder the abilities of God. Ponder the sovereignty of God here. His capacity to create what we say in Latin, ex nihilo, something out of nothing. That's where the greatness lies, and here's where the accomplishments are described. Glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains full of prey, he goes on to say at this point. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. Now he is combining poetically with historically something more. Back to Second Kings again. The stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil. They sank into sleep. All the men of war were unable to use their hands. When well, Second Kings 19, this is exactly what's described. As you're examining that very carefully, in verse 35, And that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Now you're pondering how the greatness of God links itself to the accomplishments of God. And then you remind yourself furthermore that the battle belongs to the Lord. And so whatever it is that you're battling right now, have you given it to the Lord? There's your starting point. It's not the greatness of who you are, it's the greatness of who God is, and you move from the who to the what, from the greatness of God to the accomplishments of God. This is powerful, what he's doing here. So you get to verse 6. Here's the power of the word. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. Now, what fascinates me is that back in 2 Kings 18, where all this is historically described, there was an ambassador named the, Ra, uh, um, the Rabshakeh, if you will. 
who was sent out by the king of the Assyrians and made this statement to the king of the Jews. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And yet it's words that are described here now musically in verse 6. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned. So the Rabshika is using words to challenge the idea of the greatness of Yahweh, speaking of the supposed greatness of the Assyrian king. But then God will have the final say when he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Think that through again. When you ponder the power of the Word. Look at the power of the Word during World War II. The eloquence of a Churchill, for example. The profound succinctness of phrasing of Franklin Dono Roosevelt that would inspire people, but there's something greater than all that here because this has the power to change life. At your rebuke, O God of Jacob, both rider and horse lay stunned, which is exactly what happened. Back to history. 1944, allies arrive on the scene and liberated Paris. Church bells ring, silent during the German occupation. Historian tells us now erupted in a cacophony of joy. But the bells of Saint Philippe de Rolle do not ring. Apparently many people of that congregation called Canon Jean Muller that Thursday evening urged the church bells join the chorus. And on the following Sunday, Mueller thanked all who called him to ask him to ring the church bells. And then he said, I should also like to remind you of something you all forgot in your excitement. There are no bells in the belfry of St. Philippe. It's so easy to overlook things in the midst of the emotions of life. So easy to forget what has taken place on the battlefields of life. But what God has done is that He has broken in, as Schaefer would put it, to time and space, as He sent Jesus in our place for our sins. And that's the ultimate memorial right there, as we not so much celebrate as commemorate. So there's the greatness of our God in 1 through 3. And here's the accomplishments of our God as you move from the who to the what in 4 through 6. And then you move into the third stanza, don't you? Because thirdly, in times of intense conflict, take on one more day, reflecting upon what we'll call the justice of our God. But you, you are to be feared. Note the exclamation point here in the English. Followed by a question mark. Always fascinates me how the various punctuations are used in the Psalms. 
You have a, an exclamation point in one verse, and all of a sudden you're with a, next, a question mark the next verse. They want to keep your attention. But you, you ought to be feared, exclamation point. Who can stand before you when your anger is roused? Well, now, notice the response. From the heavens, in other words, the cosmic court. From the heavens, you uttered judgment. He is the great judge. The earth feared and was still. When God arose to establish judgment to save all the humble of the earth. I thought, all the humble perhaps of Judah, all the humble of the earth. You see, the brilliance of the psalmist at this point is that not only is he speaking poetically about matters that you and I would deem as historical, historically, but also futuristically. All the earth. And what this earth needs is someone to be able to right the wrong and put things back in proper order. Now, this is taken from March 14th. Turkish prosecutors demanded life imprisonment for the jailed U.S. pastor, Andrew Brunson, in the Second Criminal Court. Arrested without bail since October 2016, Brunson is accused of being a member and executive of the Islamic movement led by the self-exiled Turkish cleric here in the U.S. in Pennsylvania. Accused of orchestrating the failed coup attempt to overthrow the Turkish government. Pastor Brunson, behind bars. Now, according to uh, a news agency, the formal indictment also charges the pastor with establishing links with the outlawed Kurdistan Workers' Party and obtaining espionage information for political and military purposes. And if the indictment is accepted by the court, formal trial proceedings are expected to be set in motion against Brunson. And to date, neither the pastor nor his lawyer have been allowed any access to the legal file of investigation conducted by the authorities in that land. But commenting on the indictment, two vice chairs of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom said, we urge President Trump and others in the administration to redouble their ongoing efforts to secure Pastor Brunson's release. No stone should be left unturned in our efforts on behalf of this unjustly imprisoned American. And I thought about that, how there can be injustice in the court of justice. You ever pondered that? And in a world that talks about matters of justice, social justice, national justice, and so on, who has the authority to define what is just and what is unjust? In Hitler's day, the courts in Germany called just what you and I would call unjust. Who has the authority to define justice? What the psalmist does at this point is lifts our eyes upward. You start with the greatness of our God. 
you move to the accomplishments of our God, and then thirdly, you move to the justice of our God, who ultimately puts all things right. And you learn to trust, even when you feel your life is under siege. Are you doing that? Once you've done that, and you've thought this through, then you and I are ready for the fourth stanza, and that fourthly, in times of intensifying conflict, take one on one more day, reflecting upon what we'll describe here now as the supremacy of our God. Surely, he doesn't say possibly. There's a certainty about this. Christians live with certainty because God is supreme. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. Now he's looking ahead, shall praise you. doesn't say is praising you or has praised you. No, he's looking ahead. So should you, so should I. We take past, present, future and create one full spectrum of discipleship here. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. It's that point where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Where the remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. So what do I do? I've got my sleeves rolled up when it comes to matters of life. I take on the responsibilities of life, even when I'm under siege, you say to yourself. So in verse 11, make your vows to the Lord. Fulfill your commitments. You're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remain committed to him. If you walked away for a period of time, come back to him. He's the one who's been faithful to you. He's the one who sent Jesus to die for you. Make your vows to the Lord your God. See how personal this is? It's not the God, it's your God. Perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who's to be feared. And now notice the supremacy of our God where we're dealing with both those that are hostile to God as well as those aligned with God who cuts off the spirit of the princes at the beginning of verse 12 who is to be feared by the kings of the earth, the second part of verse 12. And I'm back to 2 Kings 19. And in 2 Kings 19, beginning with verse 35, I'm struck with the fact that that's exactly how all of this thing was resolved where, and that night, the angel of the Lord went out, struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. Reversal of expectation. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of, the, of Assyria, departed. Um, they're in retreat. Went home and lived at Nineveh. And as he was worshiping, his false god, as he was worshiping in the house of Nisroch, his god, his sons struck him down with the sword and then escaped. One of his sons would reign in his place. That's the historical background to the end here 
who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. And so the people of Judah might have feared son of Sherib, the king of Assyria, but the son of Sherebs of this world need to fear the king of kings and lord of lords. Because God has a way of sending the second member of the Trinity into the ultimate cosmic battle of life. And when life seems so defeated, victory is secured. World War II, there was a man by the name of Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier at Lexington in the South Pacific. Biographer tells us one day his entire squadron was sent on a mission. As after he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation, headed back to the fleet, and as he was returning to the mother ship, he, he saw something that turned his blood cold. A squadron of Japanese aircraft were speeding their way toward the American fleet. American flighters were, were gone on a sortie, and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron, bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. So what would he do? Get this. Knowing he must somehow divert them from the fleet, laying aside all thought of personal safety, he dove into the formation of the Japanese planes. Wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprised enemy plane and then another. Butch O'Hare wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired in at as many planes as possible until all his ammunition was finally spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the planes, trying to clip a wing or tail in hopes of damaging as many enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. Well, finally, the, the exasperated Japanese squadron headed off in another direction. Now think of Syrians and Sharif heading off in a different direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the events surrounding his return, and the film from the gun camera mounted on his plane told the entire tale. Showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had, in fact, destroyed five enemy aircraft. And this took place on February 20th, 1942, and for that act, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II, the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. And today, Butch O'Hare, this World War II hero, is honored in Chicago with O'Hare Airport. O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this one who is willing to give up his life so that the people of this nation could live. And so the writer goes on to say, so the next time you find yourself at O'Hare, give some thought to visiting Butch's memorial displaying his statue in his Medal of Honor. It's between Terminals 1 and 2. And then when you do that, and you reflect upon those that were willing to give up their lives 
for our national freedom. Make sure you make your way to the cross and think about the one who laid down his life for our eternal freedom. For as Carol Aviat puts it, George's position was known as the coffin corner. And on his 300-mile trek through the dangers of war-torn France, he continued to repeat to himself these words, just one more day. And so, if you find yourself under siege, go to the cross of Jesus Christ. Ponder the empty tomb three days later and take on one more day. Let's stand together. We learn so much about life from the battlefields of life. Thank you that you've given us a, a poetic, a musical lens into a historical account of how you intervened and made a difference. But all this leads to the one who died in our place for our sins. So it's not so much that we celebrate as it is that we commemorate. And Father, for that one who just seems so depleted, that cross and that empty tomb need to be held together, connected. I pray now they will trust in you, your greatness, ponder you and your accomplishments, embrace you and your justice, and acknowledge you and your supremacy, and live for you, and you alone. And for this we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.